Now, when it comes to the Christmas story, uh, whether or not you believe it, you may believe it entirely, or you may be skeptical about some parts of it or all parts of it. It may seem too good uh, to be true, but whether or not you believe the story of Christmas, the one thing, believer or not, I think that we can all agree on is it is a really, really good story. Now, think about it. I mean, it's got all the things that a good story has. It has a pregnant teenager, and that's not so much the good part of it, but the good part of it is that this pregnant teenager says, hey, I'm pregnant, but wait, I'm still a virgin. Dun, 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 dun. I mean, that, that's, that's automatically a good story. Pregnant teenager who says, no, it's not what you think. I'm a virgin. And then she has a carpenter who is her fiance who's reluctant to believe her because she came home and said, hey, honey, you know, I got bad news. I'm pregnant. I know that you know it's not yours, but I need you to know it's no one else's either. It's God's. And so he was reluctant, as you would have been, to believe her. And then you have angelic visitations. You have shepherds out in the fields keeping watch of their flock by night. And then you have wise men. I mean, it has everything that you need in having a good story. But I think as a follower of Jesus, and I think you should think so as a follower of Jesus as well, the Christmas story is more than a good story. It is a great story. And the Christmas story is a great story because it is part of a greater story. And if you ask me, why are you so passionate about the Christmas story? And why do you think the Christmas story is such an important thing? I believe the Christmas story is so compelling and so interesting because the story of Christmas is anchored within the story of history. And in the story of history, we are introduced to the story of Christmas. Christmas isn't one of those once upon a time in a land far, far away. It's not fable. It's not myth. It's it's not just a story that played out once upon a time, you know, within the walls and the temple walls of Jerusalem and in the temple there in Jerusalem. It was more than a story that played out among the hills of Judea or out there on the plains of Bethlehem. It's more than a story that has to do with Mary and Joseph and shepherds and wise men and, of course, the little baby Jesus. It's more than that. The story of Christmas is a story that also played out in palaces. It also played out in throne rooms. And it played out among the leaders of those who had kingdoms and empires that ultimately helped write some of the most fascinating, greatest stories in all of history. And and that's what's so compelling about the story of Christmas. It's just not wise men, shepherds, Mary, and Joseph. But this is a story that played out on a macro level. It played out in throne rooms among kings who led kingdoms and empires that ultimately shaped the story of history. And in shaping the story of history... Some of them became part of the story of Christmas. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at three kings. Not we three kings of Orient R, not that. We're going to look at three kings who were a part of the Christmas story. Two of them you've probably heard of and you know something about, but one of them, the one that we're going to talk about today, perhaps you don't know anything about. Maybe you've never heard of them or maybe you've just heard of them in passing, but you couldn't really say anything about their life. So today, the king that we're going to talk about that is a part of Christmas, though we don't think of him as a part of Christmas, his story as a king begins with a guy by the name of Abraham. And Abraham was a guy that God came to, and Abraham was from the cradle of civilization in Mesopotamia, and God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, if you'll follow me, if you'll believe me, if you'll do what I tell you to do, then I'm going to make you a promise. And here's my promise to you. I'm going to make your name great. So here's a question. How many of you have heard of the name Abraham before you came to church today? Go ahead and lift up a hand. See, God kept his promise. I'm, I'm going to make your name great. The second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to make you the father of a great nation, parentheses, even though you're 75 and you have no children and your wife's over 70 and she's considered barren. I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And one day, one of your descendants, someone from your lineage is going to bless 
the entire world. Now, as Jesus' followers, we believe that that descendant of Abraham that blessed the entire world was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Jesus Christ of Nazareth was a descendant of Abraham. And in pockets all around the world, in nations all around the world, people are gathering in his name because they believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he died for sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day. So we believe that that descendant of Abraham that blessed the entire world was Jesus. But... God went ahead to Abraham and made an additional promise. He says, Abraham, not only am I going to do that, but from you, one day kings will come. One day you will give birth through your lineage to kings. And this seems so unlikely, but Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, and they became the 12 tribes of Israel. And there's hundreds of years of fascinating history that culminates with God keeping this promise to Abraham about one day kings will come from you. And in the year 1050, a guy by the name of Saul was made king over Israel. So in 1050 B.C., you know, nearly like a thousand years or so after God promised Abraham that kings would come from him, Israel's monarch was born. The monarchy of Israel was born. One of the descendants of Abraham, Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, became king. And so God had kept his promise. Abraham's name had become great. One of his descendants in time will bless the entire world. And a king has come from the descendants of Abraham. Now, Saul was the first king. David was the second king. His son Solomon was the third king. And then Solomon's son and David's grandson, Rehoboam, was the fourth king. And Rehoboam, he was, he was an arrogant young punk, and he was for heavy taxes. And people then, like now, don't like heavy taxes. People like, you know, then, like now, they want low taxes. When people are thinking clearly, low taxes is the way to go. Taxes if you want to tax us, but don't overtax us. And so he wanted to overtax the people, and they rebelled. And there was a civil war. And in 930 BC, in 930 BC, the kingdom of Israel split. And when it split, it split into the northern kingdom, which was called Israel. And it was split into the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. And so when the civil war took place, you'll read through, you know, the Old Testament scriptures. And what you're going to read in the Old Testament scriptures, you're going to read about the northern kingdom, which was historically referred to as Israel. And then the southern kingdom that was historically referred to as Israel. Judah. So for 300 years, what's going to happen is you've got the northern kingdom and you've got the southern kingdom. And as those two coexist with each other for the next 300 years, God is going to send prophets to both kingdoms because both kingdoms and the people of those kingdoms, they were prone to wonder. They were prone to become distracted and then ultimately drift away from their faith in God. And ultimately, time and time again, the people of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, they would chase after the gods of the people who lived around them. And the reason that they chased after the gods of the people who lived around them was the gods of the people who lived around them, their God didn't care about how they lived. Their God didn't care about their morality, didn't care about their sexuality, didn't care about how they treated one another. The gods of the people around them said, hey, do whatever you want to do with whoever you want to do it, whenever you want to do it. And that, that was attractive, right? That type of freedom, that type of liberation, that was attractive. So time and time again, the people of the north and south, they would drift and they would chase after those things. And when they did, God would send prophets to say, hey, you're chasing after the wrong thing. You're chasing after pleasure and you're chasing after freedom. But what you don't know is this. 
When you're chasing after pleasure and you're chasing after freedom, sooner or later, if you don't turn back to God, you're going to catch what you've been chasing, but it's not going to be what you think in the end. Pleasure is going to be destruction and freedom is going to be bondage. And it's not going to be what you thought you were chasing this entire time. And so God would send the prophets to say, turn back to God, turn back to God, turn back to God. Now, in the northern kingdom, they were just consistently bad consistently bad. They never listened to the prophets. They never turned back to God and they continued to chase after the wrong thing time and time again. And again, they thought they were chasing after pleasure and freedom, but in the end, they didn't realize that they were going to catch destruction and bondage. And so God just allowed them to go and go and go. And eventually God let them catch what they had been chasing the entire time. And in the end, it wasn't what they thought they were going to find in the end. And so God in the northern kingdom allowed them to catch what they'd been chasing. In 722 BC, he allowed the Assyrian Empire to come in and destroy the northern kingdom. And when the northern kingdom was gone, only the southern kingdom of Judah remained. And when the northern kingdom was wiped off the face of the map and everybody down in the south heard about their cousins and their uncles and their aunts, they were thinking... Well, maybe we should turn back to God. And so surprisingly, there was a revival down in the south. And it was led by a king by the name of Hezekiah. And so all of this is so important to get us to the place where we're going to talk about this king that we're discussing today. You have Hezekiah who leads this revival. And then people drift again. They become distracted. And it's just this cycle. Then there's a young king by the name of Josiah. Josiah will lead the greatest revival of the Old Testament. He will lead the greatest revival in history for the southern kingdom of Judah. And then once Josiah dies, uh, one of his sons, Jehoaz, takes over. And Jehoaz is nothing like Josiah. Matter of fact, he only reigns for three months and somebody takes him out. That's how bad he was. And then another son of Josiah takes over. His name was Jehoiakim. And this brings us to about the year 605 BC. Jehoiakim is a puppet king of Necho, the pharaoh in Egypt. He's been placed there by the pharaoh as a puppet king. And so he really works for the Egyptians, but yet he's allowed to keep his title as king. Well, Jehoiakim in 605 is the king over Judah, the southern kingdom. But something's happening over in the far east. There's a brand new kingdom that's coming to power. It was an empire that was once great that's becoming great again. There's a renaissance of sorts, and it's the Babylonian empire is being revived, led by King Nebuchadnezzar. In 605, Nebuchadnezzar comes to town, he conquers the Egyptians, and then he comes to Jerusalem, and he tells Jehoiakim, you've been working for Egypt, now you're working for me. So I'm going to leave you in power as long as you understand there is a new sheriff in town. But after about three years, Jehoiakim decides to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And what happens is Nebuchadnezzar comes back when he hears that Jehoiakim has rebelled against him. And in 598 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes back, he dethrones Jehoiakim, and he places in power a brand new king, another son of Josiah. His name was Zedekiah. And so in 598 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar names King Zedekiah the king over Judah. Now he's a puppet king, and he works for King Nebuchadnezzar, but he has the illusion of power, the illusion of authority, and he gets to maintain the seats of his fathers who had gone before him on the throne of David. Now, here's what Zedekiah didn't know. This is what Nebuchadnezzar didn't know. This is what no one knew. When Nebuchadnezzar named Zedekiah king over Judah, he would be the final Jewish king. He would be the last king to set upon the throne of David. Zedekiah didn't know that. Zedekiah thought that life was going to go on just like life had gone on all before. 
He thought he was going to rule. He thought his sons were going to take over. They were going to rule. They were going to pass it on to their sons and their sons and so on and so forth. He had no idea that this was God's last chance to the nation. This was God's last opportunity to the nation to turn back to God and stop chasing after the things they've been chasing after. Zedekiah was the last chance for Judah to get things right. He didn't know it was God's last chance because we never know when it's God's last chance. We never know when it's our final opportunity to make things right. You say, well, that's a little scary. Are you trying to scare us? Maybe. Maybe because this is life. This is just reality. He didn't know that it was going to end with him. You don't know if it's going to end with you. You have no idea if this is your last opportunity to do what you know you need to do. And Zedekiah had no idea that this was his last opportunity to do what he knew he needed to do. And so here's what the Old Testament Jewish scriptures say about this king. It says, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. And that might be half the problem right there. You know, at 21 years old, your frontal lobe is not even completely, you know, formed. So it should be like a law in every kingdom. If your brain's not fully developed, you just can't be king. Right? It just makes sense. If, you're, if you don't have a full brain, you shouldn't be king. But yet, here he was, Zedekiah, 21 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 11 years. And it says of him, the commentary on his life was, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God. And he did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke the word of the Lord. And so Zedekiah, he refused to stop chasing after the things that all the people before him had chased after, except for his father, Josiah, and a few other kings that led the nation to turn back to God. He was like his brother Jehoaz. He was like his brother Jehoiakim. He refused to restore temple worship. He, he refused to cancel out idolatry in the land. And so he refused to do what he knew was the right thing to do. And this is what's interesting about this. Zedekiah had a front row seat to what rebellion can do in someone else's life. It had cost him, it had cost him his brother Jehoaz, and it had cost him his brother Jehoiakim. It had also cost him a nephew. And so he had three people up close and personal in his life that rebellion against God and refusal to submit to God had destroyed their life. But yet, he is going to be a king who persists in his own rebellion. Now, why would he do that? For the same reason we do that. Many of us, we have watched what sin and rebellion can do in the lives of other people. We've seen it destroy families. We've seen it destroy lives. We've seen it destroy finances. We've seen it destroy the next generation. And we've seen what sin and rebellion against God can do. But yet some of us have persisted in times past. And some of us today might still be persisting, chasing after the wrong things, even when we have seen what chasing the wrong things can do and has done in the lives of other people. And you know why we do that? The same reason Zedekiah did that, because he thought he was different. He thought it wasn't going to happen to him. He thought he could outsmart it. He thought he could sidestep the consequences. He thought he could skirt the responsibility. He thought that he had a plan that nobody else had, that he had an angle that nobody else had. He was going to be able to manipulate the circumstance. He was going to be able to control the outcomes. And it wasn't going to end up for him like it did the other people, though he was doing the same thing other people had done. Because he's an arrogant guy. And arrogant people seek autonomy. Arrogant people seek autonomy because they despise accountability. And when that happens, bad things ensue. It says about Zedekiah that he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar because when you have an authority problem with God, you ultimately end up having an authority problem with people. 
He rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, who was the most powerful man on the planet. And why in the world would Zedekiah think that he is so smart that he could overtake with his little kingdom of Judah as a little puppet king, you know, to Nebuchadnezzar? Why in the world would he think that he could take out the most powerful man in, on the planet? who had made him take an oath of office in God's name. And so when Zedekiah was placed in office, he had to swear three things. He had to swear, one, that he would never raise an army against Babylon. Second thing, that he would pay his taxes or his tribute back to Babylon, and he would send the money and the gold back there to keep Nebuchadnezzar happy and to keep the empire funded. And then the third thing he had to promise, that he would not rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And so that was his oath. And he said, I'll do those things. And Zedekiah said, okay, you, you take that oath in God's name. I'm making you king. But if you ever step out of the box, you know where I'm at. And I know where to find you. And I will handle you. And so Zedekiah, even though he made this commitment, even though he knows who he's dealing with, he's going to persist in, a, you know, he's going to persist in rebellion. He's going to persist in lacking submission for God and lacking submission to Nebuchadnezzar because, again, he, he thinks he's different. He thinks he's bigger than the rest. He thinks he's too big to fail. He thinks that he's better than the rest. You know, all those things that we've thought at some point in time. And so he persists. He thinks he's smarter. He thinks he's different. He thinks he's not going to suffer the consequences that other people have suffered. And because of it, it says that he, he was stiff-necked. He was obstinate. He was stubborn. And he hardened his heart and he would not. Not that he could not, but he would not. He chose not to. He would not turn to the Lord, to the God of Israel. He was inflexible. He was inflexible. Now listen to this. This is crazy. But we find ourselves in this story. Zedekiah knew the right thing to do. He knew the right thing to do, I think, because he was raised by his father Josiah to know right from wrong. But beyond that, I think common sense in many of these cases spoke to Zedekiah about what the right thing to do was. And even if those two things had failed him, which I don't think that they did, and we have no reason to think so, he had Jeremiah the prophet who was in his face saying, Zedekiah, this is the right thing. And even though Zedekiah knew the right thing to do, he chose to do the wrong thing. Why in the world would anybody do that? Because we do it all the time. Why do you do that? Why do I do that? Why, when I know clearly what is right and what is wrong, do I choose what is wrong? Why is it when I know what the best thing to do is not necessarily the thing that I want to do, but yet I choose the thing that I want to do, even though I know it's not the best thing to do? Why is that? Because this is what Zedekiah did over and over and over again. And listen, he valued his own desires for his life above God's desires for his life. His lust for power, his lust, you know, his lust for autonomy and no accountability, it was that lust that he considered to be greater than God's law. His lust trumped God's law. You know, and, and, and it was over and over again that Zedekiah, he just had this mentality where he knew the right thing, but he didn't care about the right thing. He, he knew God's will, but his will was more important. And in the end, he wanted his way no matter who it hurt. Even if it hurt him, he wanted his way. Even if it hurt his family, he wanted his way. Even if it hurt the people around him, he wanted his way. You know why? Because his heart was callous. His heart was hardened. His conscience had been seared. And you know that can happen, right? You know that your conscience, it can be seared over time. It can be calloused. And the things that used to bother you will no longer bother you. Can you think of some things in your life that once upon a time it bothered you? 
But now it doesn't bother you anymore. Now, it's one thing if you came out of a legalistic background and you realized some things that you were told was not necessarily, you know, that it was wrong. And you found out, well, no, it's really not wrong. And, you know, a whole bunch. That's one thing. But I'm talking about something clearly right, clearly sin. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you knew what was right and you kept doing the wrong thing? And at first you felt bad about it, horrible about it, broken about it. You even shed tears about it. But over time, it just didn't bother you anymore. Well, this is kind of where he got to. And maybe some of you, you've gotten there now. It just doesn't bother you. There was nothing that could get inside. There was nothing that could pierce that harsh exterior of his heart. And basically, Zedekiah's motto became this. My will, not your will be done, God. That, that was his motto. My will, not your will be done. Now, we would never say that out loud, would we? Because it would be like... We would never verbalize that. We would never be so arrogant. We would never be so full of ourselves to say, God, I just, I just want to be honest with you. Let my will be done and not your will be done in my life. We would never say that. But let me tell you what we will do. We will live that way. We will make our choices based on that unspoken motto. And we will choose our will over God's will. And essentially, we will say to God, not with our words, because we would never do that. We will say, God, not your will be done, but in the end, I want my will to be done. Because my desires and my wants and my ideas, they're really more important than your plan and your will for my life. And so that was Zedekiah. Then you have Jeremiah who shows up in Zedekiah's life. Here's this prophet of God. I mean, he's a real creative guy. If you want to be entertained, read some of those Old Testament prophets and how they preached. Isaiah ran around naked. I mean, that's interesting. Uh, that would capture your attention. And, and then you just wouldn't want to pay attention anymore. You'd be like, could you, could you put a robe on? I don't want to listen. But Jeremiah, when he showed up to talk to Zedekiah, he put on a wood collar. Put on a wood collar. And he wasn't making a fashion statement. It wasn't the Vogue thing to do in his day. But it was a yoke. And, and it was a collar that they placed on animals so that the master could bring that animal under submission that it would cause that animal to surrender its will to its master. And so as an illustrative sermon, uh, Jeremiah puts on a wood collar, a yoke, and he shows up in the courts of Zedekiah and he speaks truth to power. And he takes a risk and this is what he says to the king. He says, bow your neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Serve him and his people and you will talk to me. What's this word right here? And you will live. Zedekiah, the choice is clear. Surrender and live. The implication being, if you do not surrender, you will not live. So your choice is death and life. To which we would say, who in this world would choose death over life? But people do it all the time. You've done it. Right now, some of you are heartbroken to see some of your family members doing it. You're watching some of your family members, some of your friends people that you know, and they consistently choose death over life. They're involved in a habit. They're involved in a lifestyle. They're making choices that it's not for their good. And they're robbing themselves of life, and it may even end up costing them their life. We see people choose death over life all the time. And this is what Jeremiah said. You can choose life or death, and if you surrender, if you submit, if you humble yourself, you will live. But Zedekiah wants no part of it. You know why? Because arrogant, autonomous, and unaccountable rebels wrongly believe that they're able to manage the consequences of their own behavior. Do you know why we've con you know, consistently persisted, some of us, to make the wrong decisions in life? Because somewhere in our heart and somewhere in our minds, we thought that we could manage the consequences of that behavior. 
We thought we could control the outcome of the behavior. We thought that we could escape the consequences, the pain, the payday, the payoff of what we knew the wrong thing was, but yet we did it anyway. And that's the reason Zedekiah will persist in rebellion, because he thinks he can control the outcome. He thinks it won't happen to him. He thinks he's different. He thinks God's going to change his mind. And Jeremiah, he will not relent with the message. You surrender, you live. Not only will you live, Zedekiah, but your family's going to live, and the people are going to live, and the city will be spared, and the temple will be spared. But if you don't, there's pain and there's destruction. And there's death at the end of this story. It is predictable. It is unescapable. And Jeremiah wanted to teach Zedekiah a lesson that every parent wants to teach their children. The outcome of rebellion is always painful. Matter of fact, we had this object lesson with our two boys Saturday in our basement. Shepherd Grayson, do not do this. I'm not going to tell you again, do not do this. Five minutes later, they are doing this, of which I spoke and told them not to do. So I summoned them into my presence. <laughs> and I had them go procure for me a spoon. <laughs> Judge me if you wish, a wooden spoon. And I brought to them in the most clearest of terms, in the most intimate of ways, the connection between rebellion and pain. <laughs> if you call child services, fine. Some of you, it's timeout. Some of you, it's you take the Nintendo. Some of you, you take the keys. Some of it, whatever. Some of you spank. Some of you don't. Some of you need to spank. We have been with you and your children. For the love of God Almighty, who is holy and righteous, please do us all a favor. But Jeremiah wanted him to know, if you persist in this, there's going to be pain because pain and rebellion go hand in hand. You cannot escape the pain that comes with rebellion. Now, and here's what you already know. Some of the most painful moments of your life, not all the most painful moments of your life, but some of the most painful moments of your life, if you're honest about it and you think about it, are connected to seasons when you rebel. You knew the right thing to do, but you didn't do it. And pain ensued. Pain followed. So you know this is true. I know this is true. Zedekiah, he knows it's true, but he needs to be reminded of it. So Zedekiah, he's asked a question by Jeremiah. And Jeremiah said, why? Which is a great question. Why will you and your people die by the sword, famine, and plague when you don't have to? Why would you do that? With which the Lord has threatened any nation that will not serve the king of Babylon. Why would you do this? This doesn't make sense. You know the right thing to do. Why not do it? You know the right thing is the best thing to do for you, for your family, for everybody else. Why Will you not surrender to God's will, God's way, the right thing, the best thing? Why will you not submit yourself, humble yourself, Zedekiah? And I'll tell you why Zedekiah wouldn't do it. He had voices in his life. He had influences in his life that were giving him a different set of advice. He had prophets in his life. He had friends in his life that were essentially saying, Zedekiah, listen, don't listen to Jerry please. He's a dinosaur. He's from a day gone by. He doesn't represent the values of a new generation. We are more enlightened. We see the world differently. Jeremiah is a fossil. Don't listen to him because here's what I want to say to you, Zedekiah, as one of your friends. You're doing the right thing. You're the man. You've got the guts to do what nobody else would do. 
You're your own man. You're plotting your own way, and I applaud you for it. We applaud you for it. And here's what we believe. We believe God's got your back. We believe it's all going to work out for you in the end. We believe that God's even going to make the Babylonians pay back the gold that they stole out of the temple. So you keep going the course that you're going. You should feel good about what you're doing because we're behind you, and God's behind you. And so that's what a group of people over here are telling him. And so Jeremiah, he knows about it, and he says, hey, do not listen. To the words of the prophets who say to you, you will not serve the king of Babylon. For they are prophesying lies to you. They're lying to you. They're telling you what you want to hear. But guess who Zedekiah wanted to listen to? <laughs> he wanted to listen to the people who told him what he wanted to hear. It shouldn't, shouldn't surprise us because we all migrate to the people who affirm our choices and our behavior. We don't migrate to the people who hold us accountable. We don't migrate to the people who says, no, that's not right. You shouldn't do that. You should think about this. I love you, but you should think about this. No, we migrate to the people that we feel are going to affirm our choices, our behavior, no matter what it is. And there's something that's inside of all of us. It's insidious. It's an inconvenient truth, but it is a truth nonetheless. And you need to know it about you, and I need to know it about me, and we need to know it about ourselves. And Zedekiah, he should have known it about himself. And this is the truth that we all should know. We drift towards beliefs that excuse our behavior. We drift towards beliefs that excuse our behavior. We ultimately find most believable the thing that justifies the behavior that we want to justify. Even when we kind of know in our hearts of hearts it's not the right thing, but yet we, we want to find somebody, we want to find a voice, we want to find somebody who says, no, that's right, somebody got it wrong. You just do what you want to do as long as it makes you happy. In the end, you just got to take care of you and all the things that sound like, you know, hey, that, they love me, they care about me. And, and here it is. On some level, we all crave a theology that allows us to do whatever we want to do. And you know what we will do? We will recreate God. In our image, the image that we want him to be. And we will recreate God so that we can redefine God. What he said, what he meant by what he said. We will create our own designer God that says, you know, I think God's okay. I don't think God cares. I think God understands. God understands what, you know, that this is completely understandable for me in my situation. Anybody would do what I, I'm going to do in this situation. God loves me. God understands Da, 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 da. Because we all want a theology about God, a theology about sin, a theology about people, a theology about life that in the end allows us to do and chase what we want to chase. And it's inside of you. And it's definitely inside of me. So we will change our ideas about God in order to make God fit in the box of whatever box we want God to fit in. Instead of trying to allow God to make us in his image, we try to turn and make God in our image. And it's the great reversal. And so Zedekiah, he persists. He doesn't submit. He continues to rebel. And Nebuchadnezzar hears about it. And Nebuchadnezzar puts up with no such thing. So he sent a faction of his army to Jerusalem. And on January the 15th, 588 B.C., because this is history, the siege of Jerusalem begins. And the Babylonian troops, they're outside the walls of Jerusalem. Zedekiah wakes up one morning and his advisors say, Nebuchadnezzar's army is here. In that moment, who do you think Zedekiah thought to talk to? The person that he didn't want to talk to before, Jeremiah. 
And he went to Jeremiah, and here's what he said. Please pray to the Lord our God for us. I bet he did. Will you please pray for us? And, and Jeremiah, I mean, he's like, no, no, I'm not going to. We're past the point where we pray. We're at the point where we do something. No, Zedekiah, where you do something. Because you need to stop asking God to get you out of the mess that you got yourself into. Because we love to pray that prayer. God, I'm in a hole. Will you get me out? And God's thinking, but you dug the hole and jumped in. And all of a sudden, Zedekiah's wanting God to get him out of what he got himself into for a moment. And Zedekiah tells him, you've got to surrender. You've got to walk out there right now. You've got to bend your knee, and you've got to surrender. And if you'll surrender, you'll live. Your family will live. The city will live. The temple will be spared. But he refuses. And he stays locked up in the palace. And then one day, someone starts yelling, Come, come quick, come quick. And the Babylonians are leaving. They're retreating. And no one knows where they're going or why they're going. But we know what's happening. In Babylon, the Egyptians knew that part of the army had been dispatched to Judah. And so Egypt attacked Babylon. And so word came to the troops and they went back to help defend the capital. And Zedekiah, he looks at Jeremiah and says, I told you, this is all going to work itself out. They knew not to mess with me. They're fleeing. I don't even know what we were scared of. I told you it was all going to be okay. My guys were right. And Jeremiah said, Zedekiah, don't deceive yourself. They're leaving, but they're coming back. And when they come back, they're going to take the city. Zedekiah, look at me. You're looking at me, Zedekiah. God's coming for you. God's coming for you. And he's not coming to pay you back, but he's coming to win you back. And you need to go surrender. This is your chance. This is your last opportunity. Go surrender. Go surrender and you'll be spared. You'll live. The city will live. Because they're coming back. And if you refuse to surrender, it's over. Because Zedekiah, God loves you too much to let you get by with your rebellion. God loves you too much to let you get by with your rebellion. So make this right. Do what you need to do. And so Zedekiah didn't want to hear it, so he threw Jeremiah in prison. He ended up letting Jeremiah out of prison. And Jeremiah went to the streets of Jerusalem saying, get out, get out, get out. Flee the city, flee the city. Everyone who's in the city, when the Babylonians come, they're going to die. The soldiers are looking at each other like, I'm not feeling too good about this. And so he's charged with treason, killing the morale of his troops. And Zedekiah throws Jeremiah in a well, but Jeremiah won't stop preaching. From the bottom of the well, he said, turn to God, turn to God, turn to God, turn to God. And then one day they look up and in the distance, here come the Babylonians with King Nebuchadnezzar leading the charge. And he's brought his whole army with him, fresh off the defeat of the Egyptians in Babylon. And when word comes to Zedekiah that the Babylonians are back, he got Jeremiah out of that well 
and says, what are we supposed to do? And then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. If you talk to me, if you surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, your life will be spared. This same message, Zedekiah, I've been saying from the very beginning. The city will not be burned down and you and your family will live. And then he says, but if you refuse to surrender, if you refuse, there's pain and there's destruction. It's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt your family. And it's going to hurt all of us. So Zedekiah, come on. Why would you not surrender? You know the right thing to do. You know it's God's will. You know it's the best way. Your way is going to end badly. So Zedekiah, swallow your pride. And walk out the city gates and bow your knee and surrender. Because if you surrender, you'll live. I know it may be the hardest thing you'll ever do. But you need to go out there and you need to submit and you need to surrender. It may be the hardest prayer you've ever prayed, Zedekiah, but you need to pray, not my will, but your will be done, O God. Zedekiah, you need to go out there. This was not your plan. This is not convenient for you. It doesn't fit in the plan that you had for your life, but you need to go out there. And you need to surrender. It's not going to be the easy thing to do, but it's going to be the best thing to do. If you won't surrender... It's going to be bad. And the Babylonians, they camped outside the city walls. And they cut off all the supplies to the city. And famine and disease broke out. And it was horrible. And it was terrible. And it was painful. So much so that the Jewish scripture writers say that they turned to cannibalism. Because there was no food that could come in the city. And people were suffering because of the rebellion and the stubbornness one man families were affected because of the rebellion of one man who refused to do what he knew was the right thing to do who refused to do the best thing that he knew to do and even though he knew that his way was going to cost him he could not he would not surrender and on July the 10th 586 B.C. The first Babylonian troops breached the wall and they slaughtered thousands. And they tore down the temple and they burned it to the ground. Zedekiah, he slipped out beside of his gardens, outside a secret passage through the walls of the city, him and some of his closest guards. And the Babylonians pursued him all the way to the plains of Jericho. And there they arrested him. And they marched him back to the king of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar pronounced sentence over Zedekiah. And it says, they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes. They bound him with bronze shackles. And they took him to Babylon. The last thing that he ever saw was the death of his children. And what he thought he was chasing, freedom, autonomy, pleasure, liberation in the end was none of what he was searching for but it was exactly as Jeremiah had told him 
And that was the end of the kingdom of David. This was the story of the last king of Judah, Zedekiah, the last descendant of David who would sit upon the throne. The people are going to be carted and carried off to Babylon. But in 70 years, God's going to bring them back to the land that they had been carried from because God is planning the birth of a baby. A baby who will be born Savior, but not only Savior, but King. But for right now, in this story, I think what we need to take away is the fact that God, He isn't coming for you to pay you back, but God's coming for you. God came for you. He sent His Son for you, to die for you, to win you back. And here's what we don't want to hear, but God will go to extreme lengths to win you back. Do you know how far God went to win you back? He allowed his son to die for you. And you may think you can manage the decisions of your rebellion, but you can't. And you need to know that God will do whatever it takes to win you back. Not trying to scare you, but it's true. God will do whatever it takes. God will not spare any of the consequences of your rebellion in order to win you back. If the consequences of my rebellion and your rebellion causes you to turn back to God, God will not spare the consequences to win you back. You said, that bothers me. It bothers me. So what about grace and what about love? Yes. But sometimes we dig a hole and we jump in it and God will allow us to stay in the hole that we dug and jumped into to be reminded that we need the one that we ran away from. So here's my question. Where are you refusing to surrender? Where are you stubborn? You know what's right, but you persist with your way. In what areas of your life is it your will, not God's will, be done? For Zedekiah didn't think anything good was on the other side of surrender, but there was was life. It may be the hardest thing you ever do to surrender. It may be the hardest prayer you ever pray, but pray it. Father, not my will, but your will be done. Surrendering to God will cost you something, but refusing to surrender to God will cost you something far more. And you get to choose the end of your story. And some of you need to choose wisely, and you need to choose surrender. Because at the end of surrender is life. But to refuse to surrender will take you down a path you don't want to go. So for some of you, you need to right now choose your family. You need to choose your spouse. You need to choose your children. You need to choose your faith. You need to choose your God. You need to choose life. You need to choose peace. You need to choose His will over your will. And you need to surrender. And you need to take the appropriate actions as a result of it. For some of you, that means getting rid of some things. For some of you, it means ending a relationship. For some of you, it means organizing your life in a different way. Don't be like Zedekiah. Don't refuse. Don't hold on even when you know what you're supposed to do. Heavenly Father, speak to us. God, right now, there's parts of our life where we refuse to surrender. 
There's parts of our life where we refuse to yield. And God, right now there's things that are coming to our heart and there's things that's coming to our mind. We know the right thing, we know God's way, we know the best way, but God, there's something inside of us that, that we just wanna hold on to our way and our will. But God, I pray that we would surrender that we would surrender all to you. Though it's hard, though it's inconvenient, and though it may be even a bit painful, that we would bow our knee before the King, the King of all kings, and say, God, your will, not my will, be done. In Jesus' name.